0: The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time.
1: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, October 29th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. As Hurricane Sandy roars ashore, scientists say it's high time for cities such as New York to take the threat of coastal flooding more seriously. How many
2: wake-up calls do we need in order to get out of our snoozing, sleeping, dreaming, morning
1: attitude? We'll also examine Sandy's human toll and its global financial impact. And later, Venezuela celebrates its influence on the World Series.
3: Baseball is not a sport in Venezuela, it's a religion.
0: RIs The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
1: I'm Lisa Mullins and this is the world around the globe today. One story is commanding headlines.
0: La première
4: est la largeur de l'ouragan Sandy, plus de 1000 km. La seconde est la longueur de la costa
5: La costa este de Estados Unidos se prepara a enfrentar una super tormenta que los medios han llamado Frankenstorm y que amenaza a unos 60
6: kilometers. Irgendwo zwischen Virginia Beach und Boston, dann... Hurricane
1: Sandy, leading newscast there in France, Mexico and Germany in that quick sample. Some 50 million people are in the storm sites from the mid-Atlantic of the U.S. to the Great Lakes and up to Canada. Already we're hearing reports now of widespread power outages and storm surges. And forecasters say there are more to come. We're going to start our coverage today of Hurricane Sandy in New York with the BBC's Barbara Plett. She normally covers the United Nations, but today she's looking at a major international hub that's largely shut down.
7: Certainly in terms of travel, thousands of flights have already been cancelled. The latest figure I've seen is 10,000, which is hugely significant for international travel because New York is such a hub. You've had the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, shut down. Of course, they're a financial hub for the world. That's very significant. The United Nations has shut down. Now, there were uh, meetings sh- uh, scheduled there for today which involved two presidents. One, the president of Guatemala was supposed to lead a debate on women, peace, and security, essentially about women and how they can contribute to the prevention of conflict, how it affects them, and so on, with quite a few high names supposed to speak at this debate. That's not happening. Then you had another president, Evo Morales of Bolivia, who was also supposed supposed to speak at a press conference on quite a different topic. He was supposed to launch what is called the 2013 Year of Quinoa, this uh, grain that's grown in uh, South America and is becoming very popular in America. So both of those two presidents won't get their platform. Those meetings are off. As well, we're having um, a lot of human rights reporters coming at this time of year to give their assessment of their particular areas. A number of cre- press conferences were scheduled with them. Again, those are off the agenda. The UN may also be closed tomorrow.
1: Yeah, when that happens, if the UN is indeed closed tomorrow for a second day then. what What is the, the kind of culmination or the, the knock-on effect if there is a major one of such international business being put on hold even f- for a short period?
7: I think that with the United Nations it would have less of an impact than with things that are really Um, involving day-to-day matters like the financial markets, like the um, airports and, and travel and so on. The United Nations deals with issues that are thematic. They deal with mandates for peacekeeping operations that extend over a year. So what they can do is they can reschedule things Now, it may mean that you might not have the same level of guests. The presidents might go, but their ambassadors will be there so they can continue with the meetings. They won't give it as much of a profile as before. So I think actually, although there's always a lot on the agenda at the UN, it's probably easier to reschedule that without having a major impact on the world than it is to reschedule or to um, deal with the shutdown of something like the New York Stock Exchange.
1: Okay, Barbara Platt, thank you. You're welcome. That's Barbara Plett in Brooklyn, New York. While all of us are focused on the damage Sandy is causing here in the U.S., the Caribbean is already dealing with the storm's aftermath. More than 60 people were killed in the region as the hurricane downed trees and unleashed flash floods in several countries. Roads were washed out in Jamaica. Homes were destroyed in Cuba. And landslides were triggered in the Dominican Republic. But Haiti was the hardest hit by Sandy in the Caribbean. Fifty-one people were killed there. The country still devastated after the two. The 2010 earthquake was battered by uninterrupted rain and high winds for three straight days. And there is another storm causing widespread damage and deaths in Asia. Typhoon Son Tin made landfall in northern Vietnam today. Two people were killed. Before it became a typhoon, Son Tin swept through the Philippines. It triggered flash floods and landslides that killed 27 people. Son Tin has now been downgraded, though, to a tropical storm again as it heads into southern China. Meanwhile, Sandy is still a hurricane. As we mentioned earlier, Wall Street shut down today because of the storm. It's the first time since the 9-11 terrorist attacks that the New York Stock Exchange is shuttered in a crisis. Andrew Hilton is with the Center for the Study of Financial Innovation in London. We asked him about today's Wall Street closure.
4: Well, it's certainly not unique. It has happened before. It's happened in certain circumstances where you've had terrorist outages. Obviously, it's also happened if you've had extreme weather conditions. But it's most unusual that it should take place at this time of the year for something that hasn't actually happened yet. To close the markets in advance of the storm and to suggest that they're going to be closed for two days is is extremely unusual.
1: It's unusual, but does that mean it has any more impact than if it happened at any other time with more notice?
4: I think it does, yes. The markets nowadays trade around the world. It's a 24-hour business, seven days a week, really. And to take New York out for a day or for two days means that there's a sort of discontinuity. You don't quite know where prices are going to reopen when the market opens again. And people, they'll have to look for a shock when the market opens, if, if indeed stocks have been trading in other markets and they've gone up or down that will be magnified because New York was closed for two days.
1: So who benefits and who loses in terms of perhaps industries, fields that are affected, and even other markets that are affected?
4: Well, I think that uh, competitors to New York presumably benefit a bit, and that means that London might benefit. It might try and steal some business away from New York on the basis that it doesn't close. I think Asian markets similarly might feel that, you know, they can make a pitch to potential listing companies that you should list with us rather than in New York, because after all, our weather is allegedly better than yours, that kind of thing. Is that really an argument? Uh, That, I suppose, is really my concern, that uh, the New York authorities close without really discussing it with Wall Street as a whole and without discussing it with the investment community. New York is, is in some sense peculiarly vulnerable because it's less automated and more dependent on individual trading pits and a floor. Other exchanges tend to be much more electronic. And to that extent, I think that they are less vulnerable to this kind of outage. If we're going to have more and more extreme weather events, then I think it's an argument in favor of a sort of all-electronic stock market where you can run it from your basement if you really want to, but you can run it from the mount- top of a mountain if you need to.
1: Andrew, could you paint a picture for us perhaps of the knock-on effect in terms of industries that feel the hit Oh, even if they are far away from Hurricane Sandy,
4: well, obviously tourism is devastated, and I suppose the fact that the flights in and out of the U.S. are shut down is pretty devastating for many, many industries. If one thinks how many people actually fly across the Atlantic from Europe to the East Coast of the U.S. every day, it is completely astonishing. It's a number of fifty, sixty, seventy thousand people fly. The, those flights have been cancelled. Those people are not moving. Presumably, most of them had a real business reason to be travelling. So it's disruptive. It's not the end of the world. None, none of this is sort of apocalyptic, but it's all it jacks up the cost of doing business.
1: Andrew, any other knock-on effects overseas that uh, that might not occur to us at first blush?
4: Well, I think certainly it's going to feed the environmental movement, if you like. Extreme weather events are likely to become much more common in the future, and that will feed the environmental movement. It will feed the alternative energy movement. It will give a a boost to green political parties, certainly in Europe, if not in the US.
1: Okay. Andrew Hilton, Director of the Centre for the Study of Financial Innovation in London. Nice to speak with you.
4: Good to speak with you.
1: Powerful storms such as Sandy threaten coastal defenses around the world. At the same time, sea levels are rising around the world, and all credible forecasts are for them to continue to rise. The only disagreement is over how fast that rise will be. Geophysicist Klaus Jacob has written extensively about rising sea levels and how they endanger global infrastructure. Jacob is a senior research scientist at Columbia University. He says the so-called super levees used in Japan offer an important example of the possibilities and the limits of using engineering to counter the forces of nature.
2: A super levee is a very massive structure with very wide top where you can actually build a road on. The Japanese have built such super levees in which actually highways run and you can put even some businesses on that structure. So the structure is not only a protection for the lowlands behind it, it becomes actually a place where livelihoods can take place, not just for transportation, but you can have little shopping malls and other businesses
1: along it. I mean, it sounds like putting a highway or a business on top of a dam. That's exactly what it is. So how good are, are these super levies at uh, guarding the infrastructure?
2: they are good for a finite lifetime. And that's the problem with these engineered solutions as sea level rise keeps going because not only will the oceans get warmer and therefore continue to expand, but also with the warmer atmosphere, ice will melt in Greenland and Antarctica that will flow into the ocean and contribute to sea level rise. And therefore, sooner or later, they cannot function as a protecting engineering structure. We have seen that already. For instance, when the levees and pumping systems were not kept up in New Orleans, we had Katrina hurricane in 2005, a catastrophe.
1: Let me ask you one other thing. This is about Bangladesh, a developing country which is particularly vulnerable, but also a place where there have been rather ingenious ways that local people have found to protect the infrastructure there.
2: Bangladesh is a developing country that gets flooded from the typhoons from the ocean side and from the rivers from the other side. So they have been ingenious. They built levees and they built shelters on the levees. They come in two forms: Some of our designed in concrete structures where the entire village can go during a typhoon or they come in form of trees on the levees where they can climb in the trees and survive a few hours in the trees before the waters recede. That is the cheap version of ingenious protection of the population.
1: How relevant are are all these solutions to what the United States is facing right now with Hurricane Sandy? We have two choices. One, we spend a few billions of dollars in any
2: given city to protect us, or we will suffer by incurring $100 billion dollars from a storm like this or stronger in the future.
1: $100 billion from what kind of damage? From a
2: 100-year storm, you can expect damages in the order of 50 to $100 billion, not millions.
1: Do you uh, yourself, uh, Klaus, in closing here, see Hurricane Sandy not just as a disaster, but also as, as kind of a wake-up call
2: While we had one wake-up call last year under the name of Irene, we got away with less than we will most likely incur from Sandy. The question is, how many wake-up calls do we need in order to get out of our snoozing, sleeping, dreaming, morning attitude? We have to get into action. We have to set priorities and Spend money. For every $1 invested in protection, you get a return of $4 of not incurred losses.
1: Thank you. Klaus Jacob, geophysicist and senior research scientist at Columbia University. Thank you again. You're welcome. Much more still to come on The World on PRI.
8: The
0: World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
1: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. They're the kinds of questions that often get posed in a philosophy class. Is it ever okay to commit a crime? Would you be morally justified to steal a loaf of bread to feed your starving family? What if helping your kids meant harming others? That's a very real dilemma that faces some women in Nairobi, Kenya. The world's Anders Kelto recently met up with one of them and has her story.
8: In Mathare, a dense slum on the northern edge of Nairobi... Dozens of kids in filthy clothes are hanging out along a dirt road. They sit on piles of trash, holding small plastic bottles under their noses. One of them is 15-year-old Joseph Nganga. He looks high. Joseph is sniffing glue, a thick industrial glue meant for shoe repair and upholstery. He says he inhales the fumes all day long. When I'm really high on glue, even if you try to get my attention, if you call my name, I won't hear you, he says. Thousands of street kids in Nairobi are addicted to glue. It's cheap, about 25 cents for a small bottle, and the high lasts several hours. Jones Mushedu works for an organization that helps street kids. It's called the Undugu Society. He says there's a nickname for places like this. A glue bar. A glue bar.
9: Where children from all over, they can go there, give a
8: shot and just enjoy the glue. No one will come to arrest them. No one or... will come to arrest them. Glue isn't a controlled substance, but it's illegal for kids to sniff it. It leads to brain damage and can cause sudden death. Selling glue to children is also illegal. But it's not hard to find the dealer who supplies this glue bar. A few blocks away, sitting on a stump at a quiet street corner, is a woman chomping on a toothpick. She's 27 years old and pregnant. It takes some convincing, but she eventually agrees to talk to me. Why did you start selling glue?
10: It's because of poverty. I can't get a job, and I can't make a living. I have to get money to feed my children. They need food and clothes. This is the only work I can
8: find. In Nairobi, most of the glue dealers are women. They're called Mama Pimas a Swahili term meaning women who measure or weigh. This Mama Pima asks to be called
10: Jane.
8: She says she has three daughters, ages 13, 7, and 4, and a fourth child on the way. With the money that she and her husband make, he also sells glue. They can pay school fees and feed their kids. She says their children are healthy and doing well in school, and none of them sniff glue.
10: Sometimes I feel very guilty, especially when I sell glue to very small kids. They're just children, like my own.
8: It's a disturbing moral dilemma that Jane faces, exploiting children to feed her own. But she seems to have developed her own code of ethics. She claims there are some things she won't do. And have you ever refused to sell glue to a kid? Like, has a kid ever come to you and tried to buy glue and you said no?
10: Sometimes when I see an innocent child who comes to buy glue, I refuse. I think, this is someone who has not been abused, who doesn't live on the streets. They'll be more harmed by the glue.
8: But if a, if a kid comes to you and they look like they've been sniffing glue for a long time and they live on the street, you don't feel bad about selling those types of kids' glue?
10: In that situation, I usually don't feel guilty. I need the money. If I don't sell to them, what will my family eat tonight?
8: Clearly, Jane is taking advantage of street kids and making judgments about how innocent they are. But the fact is, she's also being exploited. Jones Mushedu, the advocate for street children, says the police regularly extort money from dealers like Jane. Glue manufacturers and vendors make money by selling her their product. And neighborhood bosses charge for the right to sell glue in their areas. Mushedu says a lot of people are capitalizing on her desperation. There's a chain of other people who are benefiting and it's becoming a good business. A business that takes advantage of street kids and Desperate Mothers. For the world, I'm Anders Kelto, Nairobi, Kenya.
1: In South Africa, a four-year-old saga over a political cartoon has ended, and the winner appears to be the cartoonist named Zapiro. His pen name, Jonathan Shapiro. Yesterday, South Africa's president, Jacob Zuma, announced that he was dropping all the charges against Zapiro over a cartoon that was published in 2008. The cartoon showed a woman wearing a sash with the words, Justice System... She's being held down in the cartoon by four men who say, Go for it, boss. The boss is President Zuma. He's shown standing over the woman, unbuckling his belt. The cartoon caused a furor across South Africa. At the time, Zuma was facing a corruption trial, which was eventually dismissed. He'd also recently been cleared of rape charges. Zuma sued the cartoonist. He sought about a half million dollars in damages. And then last week, just as the trial was about to start, President Zuma said he would settle for about $11,000 and an apology. The cartoonist, Zapiro, laughed it off. Well, yesterday, Jacob Zuma dropped the case entirely. His office said in a statement that although the cartoon was an affront, he wanted to avoid a precedent that could limit free speech. President Zuma has championed legislation in recent years that critics say could muzzle the press. He faces re-election in December for the leadership of the African National Congress. You can see the original cartoon and Zapiro's cartoon in response to the dropping of the case at (laughs) theworld.org. Of course, the main story of the day today, Hurricane Sandy and its impact on a huge swath of the Atlantic coast of the United States and hurricane storms track also figure into our geo quiz today. islands of the Caribbean get plenty of hurricanes. As we mentioned earlier in the program, Hurricane Sandy cut a deadly path through the region before it took aim here in the U.S. Jamaica, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, and especially Haiti were hit hard. But there are a handful of inhabited Caribbean islands that seem to avoid hurricanes compared to others in the region. So the question for you today is this, which Caribbean islands are rarely hit directly by hurricanes? They are some of the southernmost islands close to the northern coast of South America. It's a question that we asked earlier today meteorologist Kathy Ann Caesar to ponder. She teaches at the Caribbean Institute for Meteorology and Hydrology in Barbados, and today she and her students are studying Hurricane Sandy.
11: It's a remarkable event. We don't get the chance to see nature in all its uh, fury, as we would say, and glory for us meteorologists, because with the technology that we have now, we have this unique opportunity to study, again, the development of tropical cyclone as it merges and becomes what we call extratropical or mid-latitude system. What we're paying attention to is the movement of the system almost directly north, and as it merges, how you're going to get these two low-pressure systems, one as it comes across from east of the Great Lakes and merges with this system that is coming from the east coast of the U.S., and they're going to be merging into one. I was just showing a student uh, looking at the models, and you could see the two lows come together twisting and, and merging into each other and then developing into one large storm. You haven't seen
1: this kind of development in a number of years. More of our conversation with Caribbean meteorologist Kathy Ann Caesar when we come back with our GeoQuiz Answer in just a bit on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. The replica tall ship HMS Bounty is reportedly sunk after trying to escape Hurricane Sandy. We'll hear from an experienced tall ship sailor about what can go wrong in a storm.
12: If your only pumps are electrically based and you use your electricity, it becomes an issue of when you will sink, not if you will sink.
1: That's ahead on The World.
0: PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
1: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, the co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. With all the concerns surrounding Hurricane Sandy's arrival, it was easy to miss yesterday's big sports news, unless you were in San Francisco, Detroit, or Venezuela. The San Francisco Giants won the World Series in pretty thrilling fashion last night. It took 10 innings, but the Giants beat the Detroit Tigers 4-3, to so San Francisco swept the series four games to none. And who drove in the winning run for the Giants last Last night, Venezuelan native Marco Scudero and who won the World Series MVP, Venezuelan native Pablo Sandoval. Here's Sandoval speaking to reporters after the victory last night.
3: I still can't believe it, that, that game. You know, it's going of the games you dreams You don't want to wake up. So, I think this is one of the one of the kids you 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 know you you fight. And you, win to, you do a lot of things to win that game.
1: And they did indeed win the game. A lot of Venezuelans can't believe it either. Alfredo Villasmil for one. He's in Detroit now. He's been covering the series for Venezuela's largest daily newspaper, Ultimas Noticias. Now, all together, between the Giants and the Tigers, Alfredo, there were nine Venezuelan players in the World Series. They could have had a team of their own. Uh, Alfredo, must have been tough for fans, though, in Venezuela to decide just who they should cheer for, huh? Yeah,
3: well, in Venezuela many people were shooting for the Detroit Tigers because of Miguel Cabrera and every day buying the newspaper, following the web pages, Twitter, to see what Miguel Cabrera was doing. And I was sent here because he was supposed to be the great character of the series, but he wasn't, but it was another Venezuelan guy. And when he when Panda Sandoval hit the three home runs in one game I say, oops, what is this? It's supposed to be Panda.
1: By the way, just to clarify, yeah. uh, Pablo Sandoval, you're calling Panda. He's also known as Kung Fu Panda, uh, who won the uh, the Most Valuable Player Award. This, this we should say, also even got the attention of, of uh, Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela, who's been tweeting about it, along with a lot of other people.
3: Uh, Hugo Chavez made a tweet. A lot of people, uh, president, the former presidential candidate, uh, Enrique Capriles, a lot of people. He didn't say which one, but more than 300 text messages just to congratulate him for the accomplishment of three home runs in a game.
1: This is Sandoval you're talking about.
3: Yes, and another good thing was, you know, Gregor Blanco was the other Venezuelan guy who was brilliant. He's one of the favorite players of, of the fanatics up there in Venezuela because he's the best player in the Winter Bowl. And actually, we have a Winter Bowl right now uh, from October to January. Gregor Blanco plays for... Tiburones de La Guayra, La Guayra charts, and he's going to be with La Guayra playing in December the 1st.
1: So this is a real bonanza for Venezuelans because they're not even saying goodbye really to the baseball season right now because a lot of these guys, a lot of the Venezuelan players from, I would think, both Detroit and San Francisco are heading back home to play through the wintertime.
3: Yes, actually, I always, when I'm interviewed here in, in the States, I always say that baseball is not a sport in Venezuela. It's a religion. Even in the... In the normal chat, when you chat in the street in in our jargon, baseball is always present. And actually, I'm leaving tomorrow because on November the first, it's going to be Caracas Magallanes, the, the the rivalry. There's nothing compared. Forget about Boston Yankees. That's a you know that's a boy game. We are Latin. We we drums. We we play drums and we shout we shout very little. We we danced salsa in the stadium. So you can imagine 25,000 people make, make the noise of about eight 8,000 people, no? Even Marco Schroeder told me that there's nothing compared, even the World Series, nothing compared, nothing to do with
1: Caracas, my there's, there's no no comparison in terms of the volume of the crowd um, and the volume yeah. created by the crowd. Alfredo, so nice to talk to you. <laughs> Alfredo Vismil, sports reporter for Venezuela's Ultimas Noticias newspaper, talking about Venezuelan participation and pride in baseball's World Series, won last night by the San Francisco Giants with Venezuelan Pablo Sandoval as MVP. Thank you, Alfredo.
3: Thank you, Lisa.
1: Today's massive storm has edged out some of the wall-to-wall political coverage. Now, election seasons can seem endless, omnipresent political ads and debates. But what if you and your entire community opted out and created a new system? A small town in Mexico, plagued by corruption and illegal logging, has done just that. Annie Murphy has this story from the town of Chiron.
5: Josefina Estrada lives in a simple cement house on the outskirts of town. For about three years, more than 200 trucks rumbled past here each day. The trucks carried timber stolen from land that belongs to the indigenous Purepecha people. The few who tried to stop the loggers were threatened and some were killed. But police and local officials did nothing, says Estrada, and neither did the community until April
10: 2011. Y ahí me I was out in the street when another truck passed by. The men in the truck were drinking. They taunted me, calling out, Adios, Señora, and just tossed their beer bottles out the window. I was so full of rage that I went inside and started crying. I wondered whether God even existed anymore. That night, the women from this neighborhood got together to
5: figure out what we could do. The next morning, they called together other villagers— A few hours later, armed only with rocks, fireworks, and, as the women say, their courage, the group managed to stop several trucks, even though some of the loggers had guns. Eventually, the loggers escaped, but the Porépicha burned the vehicles in protest. Then they closed the roads. They kept vigil over their town, and they decided they were done with the old political system. Instead, they dreamed up a new way to do things. Trinidad Ramírez is one of 12 queris, The indigenous leaders who now make up the town council.
0: If we ask the state for security and the state doesn't provide it, we should take care of ourselves. Some people think we had a rebellion, but this is no rebellion. This is us demanding our rights.
5: And the Mexican government ultimately approved it. As an indigenous group, the Purepecha have the right to self govern. Ramirez says that making decisions as a group limits corruption. Even the election was done in public, together.
0: The vote isn't secret. Each person just stands behind their candidate. No one fights, no one says anything. It's a different way of doing things. There's no propaganda.
5: No speeches, no ads, no fundraisers. People just physically go and stand behind their candidate to show their support. The way the Purépecha used to choose leaders generations ago.
0: We talk to the oldest people in town, the grandparents, to start to discover how they made decisions in the past, and we turn to a lot of books too.
5: Ramirez opens a cupboard full of thick books, all of them about the Purépecha, history books, ethnographies. He says these books help the villagers figure out how to apply lessons from the past to the present. One key to their new system is security. With no police, the town now relies on indigenous guards. Today, one group is patrolling a checkpoint on the edge of town. It's just two cinder block huts and five guards in black t shirts milling around listening to Norteño music on a tiny radio. They carry guns, old police guns, and check every single car. They're in control here. But in the forest it's different. In the wooded hills that surround the town of Chiran, attacks still happen. In July, two Purepecha villagers were tortured and shot after going into the forest. As we hike through thick underbrush, guards fan out and disappear into the trees. It's unnerving. The guard who stays behind tells me why. <laughs>
9: They're going to make sure that there's no one out here who surprises
10: us. Sometimes the loggers still come out and see if they can catch people off guard and kidnap them, and they're never found.
5: It's still dangerous for people to go far from town to the forest or even to their farms after dark, which means the local economy is struggling. What's more, some regional officials are upset Chadan has opted for its own local government and don't want to give the town its share of state resources. But people here say they're still better off. And they may have started something. Juan José Estrada Serafin is from a neighboring village. He moved away to study, but came back when he saw what was unfolding in Cherán.
10: My,
5: My town has seen the, the transformation in Cherán, that things can be done differently, he says, that people can be united and get work done together. For The World, I'm Annie Murphy, Chiran, Mexico.
1: This story was produced in collaboration with reporter Isabella Cota and Round Earth Media's Mexico Reporting Project. Hurricane Sandy has the world's attention today, but global eyes and ears will soon be captivated again by the U.S. presidential election. My colleague Marco Werman is in the uber-global city of London to take the pulse of things there. And he's asking how people in Britain and around the world feel American presidents affect their lives. The conversation's open to you, too. Does the U.S. president have a responsibility for your future, wherever in the world you're from? We've made it easy for you to share your own thoughts. Go to theworld.org slash election and look for the big orange record button. The U.S. Coast Guard is searching for two missing crew members from the tall ship HMS Bounty. The ship ran into trouble as the crew tried to escape Hurricane Sandy's fury off North Carolina's Cape Hatteras. Fourteen crew members were rescued early this morning the ship itself is reported to have sunk. The HMS Bounty was built for MGM Studios in 1960 for the classic film Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Marlon Brando. The bounty also appeared in one version of Treasure Island and in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. For the last 20 years or so, it has served as an educational vessel. Kelsey Freeman is an experienced sailor. She spent about a third of her life crewing tall ships, Kelsey, we don't know why in particular the bounty headed out to sea as Hurricane Sandy approached, but why generally is this a common practice, that when a storm comes near, ships head out into the ocean?
12: Well, Lisa, ships are meant to sail, and they generally are going to float a lot better when they're out to sea than if they're tied to a dock, um, especially in a storm like this where you have a very, very high storm surge because it's going to rise, the water's going to rise. You have to have extra slack in the lines, in order to have that much slack, the ship will move around a lot. It will probably dash itself to bits against the dock that it is tied to.
1: It seems counterintuitive, though, that a, that a ship would go out right in the path of a hurricane. You're saying that even that is safer than being tied up?
12: Um, ideally, you don't want to head directly to the hurricane. It's my understanding, and from I was looking at maps of where the bounty had gone, they had pins and showing its, its path. It looked like they were heading out to sea and and, and generally attempting to stay out of the path of the hurricane. Um, and it looks like the storm is so big that there wasn't really anywhere that they could go that would be safe. They, they couldn't skirt it enough.
1: You yourself were um, what's called a topman when you served on tall ships. Yeah. You were one of the high climbers who worked on the highest of the sails. And uh, yeah. we've all seen kind of images of this. I don't know what it's like to what the view is like from up there. But maybe you can tell us and also what the experience is like when you're furling sails in gale force winds
12: yeah um it it can be quite scary because ships are basically reverse pendulums, so if you're all the way at the top you're and and um the ship I sailed on was quite large with the 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 royal Yards where I worked um were a uh, hundred feet up, and so you're swaying quite a bit the The ideal situation, especially if you're on a ship like the Bounty that has an engine is you do not want to use your sails during a storm because they will do their wonderful job of catching the wind and can take you in directions you don't want to go, or they can uh, flat-out rip off. So ideally, you want to send people into the rigging before a storm to actually furl up the sails and switch to using your engine. And I understand that that was part of the problem with the bounty, is that they were using their engine, and they lost electrical. And when you lose your propulsion, you can't steer.
1: The onshore staff reported on Facebook that it received a distress call from the bounty at about 6.30 last night Saying that the ship had lost power, the pumps were not able to keep up with the yeah. dewatering, so basically they were trying to bail out, but they didn't have the electrical yeah. pumps at their service and
12: that's, and that's the thing is historically ships had hand pumps, which I think in this situation, even then they would have had they would have had difficulty. but if your only pumps are electrically based and you use your electricity, it becomes an issue of when you will sink, not if you will sink. I was reading on their, on the Bounty's Facebook page, they said that when they sent out the distress call, they were taking on two feet of water an hour, and they decided to abandon ship when they had reached 10 feet. Um, I've seen the Bounty in person. Taking on 10 feet of water means the ship was almost awash, meaning it was almost sunken when they were leaving the ship.
1: Have you, been had that kind of experience, though, where the ship has tilted enough that you're almost at a 90-degree angle if you are way, way yes. up there?
12: Um I, I was sailing actually on Lake Huron and we actually we were up by the dock and we actually left the dock to head out into a squall that was coming in for the same reasons you don't want to be close to anything that the ship can be dashed against. So we, we we sailed out into it um and we were actually moving very, very quickly because we had the sails up and so I had to go up and help bring um furl up the sails and um I remember and I actually even have a photo of this of that the ship was beyond a 45 degree angle on its side heeled over because there, there was so much wind on the sails and I was on the leeward side and I remember at one minute it wasn't literally that I could reach out and touch the water but at one point um, it was heeled over so much that I felt like I was going to fall off into the water because it was that close and it was healed over that much.
1: How come you didn't fall in?
12: Um, because I was tied to the yard you wear um, protective harnesses that have little clips so when you're climbing up there, once when you're climbing you are not attached to anything but once you, once you get into place you clip into a protective line so that even if you do fall off you'll just be, be kind of hanging there
1: Alright, thank you so much Kelsey Freeman, teacher, freelance photographer based in Alexandria, Virginia She served seven years working on tall ships. Very nice to have you on the program Thank you Island culture and the music designed to keep it going. Coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is the world for today's GeoQuiz. We asked this question, which Caribbean islands are least likely to be hit by a hurricane? For the answer, return to meteorologist Kathy Ann Caesar in Barbados.
11: Okay, the islands on the southern rim of the Caribbean islands, uh, that would be Trinidad, particularly, Curaçao and Bornell, what we call the ABC Islands are in the hurricane path, but because of their proximity to the equator, are not as often directly affected by a hurricane. So explain why they usually escape pretty much unscathed. Not unscathed so much because the outer parameters of a storm can affect them, but generally because of the what we call the coriolis effect of the atmosphere, which tends to be closer to zero near the equator, It is very difficult for a storm to actually develop and mature in that region. Storms that do develop in that region tend to be, not always, tend to be weaker. We've had the exceptions, of course. And the storms tend to move away from those regions, so they tend to curve towards the north. So, are any of the islands in the region vulnerable? Oh, they're all vulnerable. You don't have to go very far away from the equator to be vulnerable. For example, in 2004, Grenada, which was just immediately north of Trinidad, was badly affected by Hurricane Ivan. So it is, you don't have to go that far. And if you go back into the history in 1933, Trinidad and Tobago was affected by a major hurricane. And that was a number of years ago, but it's still part of the
1: records. If you had a choice of, of being on an island during the hurricane season, an island that you think uh, you and your family would be safe on, what would you choose? Being a, a meteorologist, I, I kind of tend to always want to be in the middle of it. <laughs> um, you tend want to hedge your bets.
11: Yeah, but I want to hedge my bets. But what I would tend to do as most as we advise most people here is, again, be, be vigilant. All the islands are always vulnerable to the effects of a tropical cyclone or hurricane. Wherever you are at the time, if you want to be safe, just to hanker on and keep an eye out. It, it's very difficult for me at all just to say which island I would prefer to be
1: in. I love all the islands in the Caribbean. Now you're in Barbados. That's where you live. Yes, I am. Yeah. Is it sunny there? Oh, it's beautiful right now. <laughs> Don't rub it in, <laughs> Kathy. Ann. Um, do you have uh, um, any friends or family who are in the path of Hurricane Sandy?
11: Uh, well, I have family in New York, uh, aunts and ants and uh, cousins, yeah. and they would uh, uh, be in New York right now, and I, I always wish them well.
1: Yeah. I haven't spoken to them personally, but I, I wish them well. Kathy Ann Caesar, meteorologist at the Caribbean Institute for Meteorology and Hydrology. Thanks again, Kathy Okay, you have a pleasant day, and you all be safe and dry. So the islands of Trinidad and Tobago, Curaçao and Bonaire are the answer to our geo-quiz today. Finally, our global hit. It comes from a nation of some 300 islands in the South Pacific, and that is Fiji. Fiji is known for its beaches and scenic landscapes, but the country has struggled in the past few decades. There have been four military coups since 1987, and the effects of modernization are taking a toll. Reporter Michael Ree recently visited a Fijian band on the main island of Levu. They're trying to keep their culture alive.
6: I'm sitting with members of the band Rosiloa Loa on straw mats. One of them gently stirs a murky brownish liquid inside an ornate wooden bowl. He scoops some into a small coconut shell and hands it to me. So what am I drinking here? What is this again? Yangona root juice. <laughs> I just got three different answers. Yeah.
3: Well, I said in the pigeonwood, uh, word Yangona. Uh, what did
6: you say? Kaba. Cover, he said Cover. What did he say? Tropical root juice. <laughs> it's a traditional Fijian drink. The old and the new are constantly getting mixed up in Fiji, which is how you get three different responses for the name of one drink. But Rosiloa, which means black rose in Fijian, has had some success using this formula of blending the old with the new, the band first broke onto the world stage back in 2001 with a song called Roundé. <laughs> Though it sounds modern, Roundé is brimming with Fijian traditions, like multi-part harmonies and the sound of a wooden gong called a lolly. And singer-songwriter Jim Matikaviva says the song actually dates back to World War II. It was
9: written by my great-grandfather. It was the first time they had encountered airplanes and bombs exploding and stuff like that. It was a new thing to them. So he wrote about them.
6: This kind of storytelling through music draws on an ancient tradition in Fiji called meke.
9: Before Alphabets were introduced to Fiji. That's all we had. We had no written form of um, stories. We didn't have pen and paper, no. All we had was just songs. That's how the stories
6: were handed down.
9: Eh?
6: The chorus of round Day is a kind of rallying cry for people to come together to fight the enemy, which at the time it was written was Japan. But these days, Fiji has different challenges. On their most recent album, Ancient Pulse, the band sings about some of the political conflicts that have destabilized the country over the past few decades. Fiji has also seen a lot of development in recent years. As Matikaviwa talks about some of the changes, a truck filled with fresh-cut timber rumbles by. Just lately in the past, a few villages have been relocated because there's this big guy
9: who comes with big money and he offers to pay them you know, $100,000 for this particular block so he can make uh, uh, heaps of money out of it and the people who rely on that particular land for their livelihood for generations, they don't call it a home anymore.
6: Keyboardist Peter Chong also worries about what's happening to Fiji's culture. He says he's seen people in other small island countries in the South Pacific replace their own music with imports like reggae and hip-hop. kind of sad for me, you know. It's sad to see that Kids nowadays lose their language and their culture because of the influence of other types of music. Eh? But the surprise success of Rounde has revived interest in Fiji's musical roots, says Matakaviwa, especially among young Fijian bands.
9: Festivals and stuff that the kids are just playing. They're using Rounde. They're using our songs. For us, we felt, oh, yes, we did a good thing for these young people because. We sort of made them aware of their culture and the songs of their country, you know? To the extent where they're saying that we are into dark arts,
6: you know? Dark arts? Yeah. They're saying you're into dark arts.
1: Yeah.
9: Yeah, because we are trying to resurrect something that's dead.
6: For the world, I'm Michael Rhee, Vichy Lavu.
1: You can see the band's video for the song Power for the People at theworld.org. That's it for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for tuning in.
0: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.